0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of the clerkship success series of the neurology exam podcast here at Yale. My name is Charlie.
1: And my name is Sonia.
0: And we are your co-hosts for this series. So we created this series with the idea that medical students going to clerkship or students who are interested in neurology or neurology-related fields like internal medicine could benefit from something like this. And how we've done it is that over this next uh, few episodes of the series. Each episode is focused on one chief complaint and we invite a a master clinician to help us work through this chief complaint and how to approach it um, from a clinical standpoint. So this is not explicitly board review per se, but it will be helpful in that regard. uh, Although our focus here is on clinical practice. So today we have with us Dr. Muller Uh, an epileptologist and a a medical educator here at Yale. He is the director of the uh, Yale Neurology Residency Program, and we'll be discussing the chief complaint of loss of consciousness. And Sonia will now go through the learning goals for this episode.
1: The goals of today's episode are to really discuss the top differential diagnoses for both transient and non-transient loss of consciousness disorders, Um, In doing so, we'll discuss some of the key elements of the history and the examination, uh, as well as relevant workup, such as labs and imaging for loss of consciousness. And we'll go over some of the heuristics that support certain diagnoses over others. We'll also discuss some of the terminology for non-transient disorders of consciousness and discuss the examination of the unconscious patient, including the Glasgow Coma Scale.
0: Great. Now, before we move on into the details and go into the weeds, Let's talk a little bit about the neuroanatomy correlates of loss of consciousness. So, Dr. Mora, could you give us a kind of a simplistic explanation of how uh, LOC, which is loss of consciousness, um, comes about in the brain?
2: Yeah, sure. That would be great. And uh, and I I'll start by saying just how excited and honored I am to join uh, both of you. I think this is going to be a really fun resource for students, and and I think we'll have a lot of fun talking about it. And. Sonia, you've set up the learning goals, you have, you've set up, you put the pressure on for us to cover a <laughs> lot of stuff, but I think we can do it and we'll do it in a timely fashion. So the neuroanatomical underpinning of consciousness, which is really divided into alertness and awareness, alertness plus awareness, this, is, this goes back to one of the more famous texts of consciousness, which is Plum and Posner's uh, Diagnosis and Management of Stupor and Coma, a really famous book. But the underpinning uh, uh, neuron correlate of consciousness, of alertness, and then awareness is going to be the ascending reticular activating system. And the ascending reticular activating system consists of the brainstem reticular nuclei, which are throughout the brainstem, but typically periventricular around the fourth ventricle projections upward to the thalamus, to the diencephalon, and then bilateral projections to the cortex. And so if somebody has impaired alertness, that is their eyes are closed or they're not responding in some way, then it is likely a problem somewhere along that ascending reticular activating system. It could be a problem in the paraventricular brainstem, it could be a problem in the bilateral uh, thalamic nuclei, or it could be a diffuse problem in the cortex or in the subcortical structures that connect the cortex to the thalamus. Just a quick point about alertness versus awareness. Alertness just means being appearing to be awake. Awareness means meaningfully interacting with the environment. So there are examples, for example, during a focal unaware seizure where somebody can appear alert, they have their eyes open, they may even have some interaction with the environment, but they are not engaging meaningfully, they're not generating memories and things like that. So when we think about consciousness, again, going back, we think about alertness plus awareness.
0: As an aside, um, what about attention?
2: Yeah, so attention is sort of an even higher level problem, right? So you have alertness, awareness, and then attentiveness. Attention means you're not only meaningfully interacting, but that you're actually able to follow a progression or, of, of ideas or a sequence of, uh, of information so that you can appropriately encode, engage, et cetera. So many of us at times have moments of inattentiveness Somebody listening to this podcast right now may have droned you may have uh, uh, dropped off their attention because something else happened in their life. So attention is not necessarily a foundational or fundamental component of consciousness, but we do know that uh, attentiveness is really important and intention is really important for sort of the higher level cognitive function. And if you are inattentive, then it's going to be difficult for you to engage in those higher level activities. And the neuroanatomical underpinnings of attention are a little more complex, but we often think of them as the frontal subcortical projections. So that is uh, connections between the frontal lobes, the anterior part of the cortex, and subcortical structures like the thalamus and basal ganglia. One of the most common disorders of attention would be delirium. A toxic metabolic encephalopathy or delirium is going to lead to inattentiveness, along with, if it's severe enough, problems with uh, awareness or alertness.
0: Very cool. So now let's delve into the main topic of the day, which is loss of consciousness disorders. Before we move into the weeds, we want to talk about the general uh, big divisions of LLC disorders. So how would you conceptualize uh, these disorders from a like a 10,000 feet view?
2: Yeah, I think that um, the way that Sonia had introduced this at the start uh, in the introduction as appropriate. And that is that there are transient or reversible disorders of consciousness. Somebody loses consciousness and then regains it. And then there are non-transient disorders of consciousness where somebody has an alteration or a loss of consciousness that is not regained or at least not regained sort of over a short period of time. And so the transient disorders of consciousness are going to include things like seizures, syncope, psychogenic attacks, which that's a little more complex, but those are going to be your big three, seizures, syncope, psychogenic attacks. And your non-transient disorders of consciousness are going to fall along the scale of coma. And we, we will come back to
0: this topic later on in the podcast, you know, transient versus non-transient seizures, syncope, and psychogenic attacks. When you are on the ward, since this is like a series for medical students, where do you typically see patients coming with a chief complaint of transient loss of consciousness? And where do you typically see patients who have, uh, you know, like irreversible loss of consciousness?
2: Yeah. So uh, the transient loss of consciousness is going to be something that you'll classically see in the emergency department, right? You get a consultation for somebody who has lost consciousness and has regained it. You know, they had an attack. One quick warning I'll make about this is that many people have difficulty resisting the urge to apply labels to that loss of consciousness before you've, you've got gathered all the information. Uh, and, and one perfect example of that is getting called and somebody says, this person had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure And I'll just warn medical students that my general approach to that overall, when I hear somebody say that this person had a generalized tonic clonic seizure, is prove it. And so you start from a place of skepticism about the label. And and I had an old teacher who used to say that premature conclusions. Preclude subsequent thought. In other words, diving into a conclusion about disorders of consciousness before you've done the full assessment that we're gonna talk about will lead to cognitive errors. And so I prefer applying labels like spells or episodes or something like that to mm. say that something happened. There was some transient loss of consciousness. We've talked about the differential diagnosis of that, and that we're going to spend the time delving into the ways we can differentiate those.
0: That is a very good point and something that we'll round back on later as well. Now, what about uh, non transient loss of consciousness? Where do you usually see that?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, depending on the degree of loss of consciousness or the degree of coma. Many of these people are going to have difficulties with maintaining airway, and so they're going to be in an intensive care unit on a ventilator. If it's not as severe, then you might see these patients uh, as hospitalized inpatients, uh, somebody with uh, varying levels of delirium, stupor, things like that. Uh, those, the, so most of the patients with a non-transient disorder of consciousness are going to be admitted to hospital because they're gonna have other problems related to that, difficulties breathing, difficulties caring for themselves, difficulty eating, et cetera.
0: All right, so I think that's a great overview of what we're about to cover. Uh, let's start with the transient side, the transient loss of consciousness, and uh, Dr. Mola, you've already talked about the kind of top few di- differentials, even before you're looking into a patient, but the top three differentials, as you mentioned, were seizures, syncope, and psychogenic spells. So now we arrive at this patient, and they've had a transient loss of loss of consciousness, and we're taking a history so, in medical school, when we learn history taking, we use mnemonics. And the one that I remember is old cards, which stands for onset location, duration, character, aggravating relieving factors, radiation, time, and severity. So, this was taught to me in the framework of pain. So, some of these may not really apply to you know, LOC disorders, but let's try to attempt to go through elements of these, this history using this framework. And hopefully you can tell us or help us explain, you know, what you are looking for in each one of these uh, characteristics of the history, starting with, let's say, onset, and let's let's bunch with that offset, since this is a transient thing. So what questions uh, of the patients would you focus on uh, about the onset?
2: Yeah, and and, uh, Charlie, I I think this is probably the most important is going to be the most uh, fertile ground for history taking is what happened before, just before the episode occurred, and what happened just after. Because it's a statement of the obvious that if a person had a disorder of consciousness, then what happened during is not something they're going to be able to provide much insight into. And so much of what we're going to be asking is what happened just before and what happened just after. And so, what happened just before is really fertile ground. And again, we're distinguishing seizure from syncope from psychogenic attacks. You know, generally, we can talk about other things. So, sometimes what I say is, what's the last thing you remembered? And if they say, the last thing I remembered is getting blood drawn you know, uh, as I was donating blood at the Red Cross or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then my vision closed in and I felt sweaty. And then I had a seizure. I think, I don't think you had a seizure. You know, you have pre-syncopal symptoms. Uh, and so the typical pre symptoms have to do with cerebral hyperperfusion. You're going to have uh, uh, dizziness, which is a lightheaded type of sensation. You'll have tunneling of the vision from outward to inward. You'll have flushing. If it's a vasovagal response, you will have nausea sometimes. There's often a preceding change in position. There may be preceding dehydration or other triggering factors. There might be a sudden change in position from sit to standing or getting out of the tub or things like that. Uh, And then there is an abrupt loss of consciousness. Uh, prior to a seizure, you might have uh, symptoms of an aura, which is really a focal aware seizure that may progress to a focal impaired aware seizure. And that the symptoms of that are gonna really depend on where in the brain the seizure might have arisen from. Temporal lobe seizures might have fear or deja vu or uh, auditory symptoms. Uh, Seizures that arise from the motor cortex might have focal jerking. Seizures that arise from the visual cortex might have simple uh, uh, visual phenomena that then progress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The after, so the offset, again, a very useful question is what was the next thing you remember? You know, what was the first thing you remember when you woke up? And if people say, the first thing I remembered was, lying on the floor and my friends were running over to me, wondering what was wrong. That suggests to me, there was a very rapid return to awareness that this person was able to encode memory and interact meaningfully with the environment almost immediately after they woke up. If they remember somebody running over, it means they couldn't have lost consciousness for very long. If somebody says, the next thing I remember is being in the emergency department or being in the hospital the next day, or even I have a hazy memory of being in the ambulance and then kinda it's not really clear until I was in the emergency department. That suggests that the return of awareness was more gradual and took a lot longer. And again, that might be more suggestive of an epileptic phenomenon or a seizure phenomenon, whereas the very brief loss of consciousness would be more suggestive of syncope. So I love that question. What's the next thing you remember?
0: Perfect. And that, that really cycles very well into the next part of the old car's demonic. Well, location is kind of a moot point because there's no location of pain. Yeah, to speak usually
2: of. it's the floor if they lost right. Exactly. Uh,
0: right. What about so duration? You, you kind of alluded to this already. If someone lost consciousness for seconds versus minutes versus hours, that would change our differential or at least the priors when you see them, right?
2: Yeah, so the patient's not going to be able to tell you, but again, what's the next thing you remember might help. You know, if if the next thing I remember is is people running over and screaming, well, they couldn't have been unconscious for longer than, you know, a handful of seconds. Uh, You know, so that can be helpful. But often then you have to get collateral history. And I will say that time slows down uh, when uh, something terrible is happening to somebody you love or care about. And so people are not particularly good at... uh, estimating how long something happened. And so sometimes I'll say, how long did this last? And people will say a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds or whatever. But then I often ask, to put it into more context, what were you doing? You know. So what were you able to do? And if somebody said, well, I saw them collapse, and then I ran into the other room to get to the phone. And when I came back, they were awake then we know that couldn't be very long unless they live in a very large house, you know, where there's long distances between rooms. Right, right. If they say, I saw them collapse and I stayed with them for a while and it just wasn't stopping and I called 911 and by the time the paramedics arrived, it was, you know, the movements or the loss of consciousness was resolving and slowing down. That's longer, right? That's probably several minutes. It might even be longer than that. So in addition to asking people to estimate, witnesses to estimate how long things are going, I asked them what they did, you know, what they were doing.
0: Now, you've actually touched on several really important points about the character, which is the next part about a uh, formal on both parts framework. Uh, so the character of the pa- the character of this this episode is usually described by eyewitnesses. Obviously, by definition, the patient wouldn't be uh, aware of what was happening. So, how reliable are these descriptions of the events?
2: Well, we know they're not reliable uh, often, and and uh, I am not blaming anyone for this. Uh, this is because when you are witnessing something that is upsetting, uh, you're not attending in the same way that you would be normally, getting back to our issues of attention, right? If you're emotionally distressed, it can be harder to encode things in the, in the same way that you do when you're, say, studying for an exam or listening to this podcast, where you have our, rap, where we have your rapt attention, I hope, anyway. <laughs> the, um, so, uh, so another warning I would give is ensuring that patients and their families do not apply labels, as I said before you know, I'll see, uh, I'll hear patients say, I saw them fall down and start to seize or have a seizure. And I think there's some unconscious cognitive bias that can happen when we hear that word that leads us more in one direction or another. So when somebody says, says that, I really ask them, what did you see? What was the thing that you saw here? And they'll say, well, they were seizing. And I'll say, well, what did that look like? Well, they twitched for about 15 seconds, and then it stopped, you know, and it was mostly the arms. And we do know that some myoclonus or twitching or stiffness happens in 80 to 90% of people with syncope in in at least one study. So that twitching or jerking can superficially resemble seizures, um, but is different. What you like to see with it, certainly with a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure is you like to hear the story of all of the components of a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. So bilateral, both, both sides, tonic, that is the stiffening. So I'll ask, was this person stiff as a board? Did they have some of the other manifestations of that tonic phase? Did they have the ictal cry, you know, which is forced inspiration through the contracted vocal cords? Did, was their face red? Were their eyes open? Did they look stiff? Were they clamping down on their tongue? Was it very upsetting? Did that seem to last forever? You know, if you get that history of that tonic phase, then that's really helpful. The clonic jerking, you can see with lots of things, but that tonic phase can be very helpful and people, it's, it, it, people do remember that. And when you bring it up to them again, you know, the witnesses, they're like, yes, my God, how did you know? Yes, they were stiff as a board. It was horrifying. And it really is an upsetting uh, thing for patients and uh, families to see. And then the clonic jerking, you know, which usually starts sort of higher frequency, lower amplitude, increases in amplitude and lowers in frequency and then gradually slows. We do know that the median duration of a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure uh, is going to be about 60 to 90 seconds uh, on average, uh, almost all stop before two minutes. It's very rare that they'll continue on beyond that. And that would be, you know, certainly longer than five minutes we'd call convulsive status epilepticus. And then as the seizure is slowing down, the cause of the slowdown of a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure is a diffuse inhibition, this diffuse inhibitory response from our inhibitory interneurons. And so there is diffuse suppression of consciousness, diffuse loss of muscle tone. And as a result, people are very difficult to wake up after a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. They're often very confused. We use this term, the postictal state. But again, I prefer for people not to use that term until we get a description. I don't want to hear they were postictal, I want to hear they were sleepy and hard to arouse and so on. And another element of that state uh, due to the sort of decreased muscle tone is noisy, slow, wet breathing. This is called the stertorous breathing. And that has to do with the inhibitory response, the depressed consciousness. And, and I often will simulate it to patients. You know, I'll say, did it sound like, you know, that sort of sound? And they'll say, my God, again, how did you know? Because this is so characteristic of uh, of the postictal uh, Uh, A post seizure uh, type of phenomenon. So again, the tonic phase, the longer duration, the stertorous breathing afterward, the deep suppression of consciousness for 15, 20, 30 minutes afterward, all of those are going to be much more strongly suggestive of a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. Whereas the brief loss of consciousness, the quick arousal, is going to be syncope. Psychogenic attacks can have all sorts of different features, which we won't get into now, because there's really no clinical feature that's going to nail it for you. You know, seizures and psychogenic attacks can be very hard to distinguish except uh, on expert view and with video EEG monitoring. But I will say that prolonged or stopping and starting or atypical events with quick recovery afterwards might be more suggestive of psychogenic. But I know a lot of our listeners on this episode are students. So I, I would just caution you that every one of us has made an incorrect diagnosis, incorrecting, uh, incorrectly attributing uh, psychogenic diagnosis to something that was actually a seizure, say a frontal lobe seizure or something like that.
0: Oh, sure. And I think you raised two important points where uh, you know, I think I tripped up quite a bit when I was learning this stuff, is that in syncope, you can have bioclonic jerks. And that's something that is not really depicted, you know, when you watch TV shows or cartoons, you know, when people faint, they just faint. Um, And the other thing that was uh, very surprising for me is uh, looking at a lot of video EEG recordings, a lot of frontal lobe seizures do look like they could be psychogenic episodes and they end up being frontal seizures. So that's an important point to note uh, for me as well. So, uh, moving on the the framework that we have, after character comes aggravating and relieving factors. So, by this, I think I interpret this as precipitating factors. And he's talked about this a little bit already. You know, when you, you're, you're on a, the first thing a patient, the last thing a patient remembers before passing out was that, oh, I was giving a blood draw or something like that. And then the next thing I know, you know, people are rushing to me and wondering what happened. So that's a precipitating factor that can push you towards syncope at the cause of the loss of consciousness. Are there other precipitating factors for seizures or psychogenic attacks that point you in that direction?
2: Yeah. So for for seizures, you know, we, we do need to talk about provoked versus unprovoked. So a provoked seizure is also known as an acute symptomatic seizure, and that means it's an acute symptom of some other perturbation common things being electrolyte disturbances, hypoglycemia, drug withdrawal, uh, benzodiazepine or alcohol withdrawal, uh, drug intoxication, uh, etc and so you can sometimes identify those provoking factors and, and that can be very helpful mm-hmm. um, Unprovoked seizures is going to be different right and and the definition of epilepsy is basically, two or more unprovoked seizures or one unprovoked seizure plus other information that would indicate a risk of recurrent seizures. And uh, with unprovoked seizures, um, one, one thing that's hard to cognitively get around is that a provoking factor is something that could cause seizures in somebody who otherwise really doesn't have a risk of epilepsy. So a lot of people ask about, say, sleep deprivation or stress. I would say that those are not true provoking factors because sleep deprivation, except in the extremes or stress, would not really trigger a seizure in somebody who didn't otherwise have epilepsy or a predisposition to seizures. But that being said, you know, the first time many people with epilepsy have a seizure is in the context of sleep deprivation. The classic example Mm -hmm. would be a young person with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy who has their first attack when they move away to college. And, and. Uh, like a lot of college students do, stay up late, maybe have a few drinks and then have a seizure the next morning. That's a classic story. Mm -hmm. So I would just mention the provoking factors and then factors that could induce a seizure in somebody who already has epilepsy, like sleep deprivation. For psychogenic attacks, again, uh, we could, this would be a whole other podcast, but it's really difficult. You know, psychogenic attacks are thought to be a dissociative phenomenon, or, or at least many for many people are a dissociative phenomenon. They may have a direct psychological trigger, like some upsetting event, but often don't, right? Uh, they're, one of the problems with this disorder is that somebody has developed uh, a predisposition to sudden dissociation uh, for, because of conscious or unconscious triggers, or sometimes no trigger at all. And, and many of my patients with psychogenic attacks will say they have them even when they're not feeling stressed, and I believe them. So I would caution you about, uh, again, using, uh, hanging your hat too hard on, say, an acute uh, psychological stressor as a trigger for psychogenic attacks. If we take anything from this podcast, it's that psychogenic attacks are complex.
0: Onwards with our uh, framework, we have this matter of timing. Does the time of the day when it happens matter?
2: Yeah, not not really. Uh, that's the short answer. I don't need to think we need to belabor it. Certain, certain epilepsy syndromes are more commonly going to induce seizures upon awakening. Uh, and the most common of the epilepsy syndromes in otherwise healthy young people would be juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. And that's often with seizures upon awakening mm-hmm. or during transitional states. Um, but you can have epileptic seizures at any time. Syncope, you're typically not going to have when you're asleep. Uh, unless you have a cardiac arrhythmia or some more serious problem like that. And psychogenic attacks, it can be really tough. You know, somebody can have a psychogenic attack shortly after awakening, and for them, it's perceived to be out of sleep. So overall time of day doesn't help except in those specific circumstances. Got it, got it. And our last
0: uh, element, which is severity.
2: So uh, one point that I think is really important to make is that injuries related to episodes do not particularly help in distinguishing syncope from psychogenic attacks from epileptic seizures. And again, I cannot emphasize this enough. Psychogenic attacks are not voluntary and not under the voluntary control of the patient. And I have certainly seen people have significant injuries in the context of psychogenic non-epileptic spells. Uh, And it's not something the patient can just control. That being said, there are a few specific types of injuries that do occur after a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure that relate to the tonic phase. And those include vertebral compression fractures. So you have the sudden tonic phase, you have diffuse muscle tone, and you have compression of the vertebrae as a result of that. Uh, Lateral tongue bite, again, because of the tonic phase, your jaw contracts. Sometimes the tongue gets pushed forward a little bit over the sides of the teeth, and you get that severe lateral tongue bite. And the question I ask is, did it hurt to eat for, you know, a few days or even longer yeah. after this episode? And they were like, oh my gosh, yeah, I could, I could eat nothing but yogurt. Then you say, oh, that probably was a bad tongue bite. Um, a posterior dislocation of the shoulder. Uh, so beca- again, because of that tonic phase, you get that classic posterior shoulder dislocation, which can be hard to diagnose. Uh, and I have certainly had patients who have had significant rotator cuff injuries from bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. Um, and, uh, and a finding I actually like and is useful is because of the sudden valsalva that occurs in the context of that tonic phase, uh, you can have impaired venous return through the superior venous cava, venous congestion, and you can have capillary rupture. So you can have uh, petechiae, and you'll often see petechiae in the face and the upper half of the chest or in the sclera and, uh, and nowhere else. And that, that can be a key finding that helps you distinguish that somebody had a seizure they were unaware of. You know, this is one of the questions I often ask if somebody, if I'm suspicious, somebody might've had an unrecognized nocturnal seizure for example. And a handful of times I've made the diagnosis on the basis of somebody noting that they had this rash on their face and upper chest that was a particular rash.
0: That's a really good point. And I I do remember seeing that on one of the presentations that you give a while back. Uh, I think it was teaching rounds or something like that. And it was quite impressive.
2: It's the same thing, actually, I learned from one of my residents. This is, uh, you can get the same finding during prolonged labor Labor, in pregnant women. And again, it just has to do with this really sustained, intense valsalva. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, uh, so
0: it seems like we have covered most of the points of the history, and we're going to move on to the exam and studies next uh, when you have a patient like this. But let me try to attempt to summarize uh, what we've covered, which is, Uh, really a lot of material. So when you're thinking of loss of consciousness, you're really thinking of seizure versus syncope versus psychogenic uh, attacks. And the sequence of events from the history that will point you towards uh, seizure as a possible cause of this event was that there may or may not have been a precipitating, you know, uh, provoking factor versus unprovoked seizures. And that's an important point to distinguish because provoked seizures will point you in a direction of this might be an isolated incident of a provoked seizure, whereas an unprovoked seizure can point you in the direction of this may be epilepsy. Um, the patient could uh, experience uh, an aura, which is a, a focal aware seizure, and this could look different depending on where the seizures originates from. And then the seizure, the seizure will last, you know, for tonic-clonic seizures, you said it will last about 60 to 90 seconds on average, and it will involve a uh, tonic phase, which is the tightening of the muscles, uh, a possible ictal cry, and uh, followed by clonic jerks that slowly uh, decrease in frequency, increasing in amplitude. And then afterwards, after the whole episode is over, there, there's likely to be some post-ictal confusion, which might be described as the patient was very sleepy. And uh, you know, there might be, as you said, this sequelae of the seizure, which are uh, tongue lacerations, so the patient might not be able to eat, or they might have petechiae, they might have a shoulder dislocation, a posterior shoulder dislocation. And all of these would point to a seizure. Versus for a syncope, um, you might have a preceding you know, res- uh, response to seeing, say, say blood or an orthostatic episode, uh, some kind of precipitating factor, unlikely to, to come out of sleep, and the patient might experience some kind of lightheadedness or some tunnel vision, and then they'll lose consciousness for a few seconds, very quick. Uh, they may or may not have myoclonic jerks, um, and then they will come back quickly and uh, fully back to uh, normal again. And then you come to the psychogenic causes, which are very complicated. The patient may or may not describe some kind of psychological trigger, uh, and it's it's not always the case. And the presentation is very uh, varied. Uh, You know, it can can range from having generalized bilateral tonic-clonic-like activity or sometimes um, variations of that.
2: So is, is that a fair summary of what we've covered so far? It was better than I could have done it and much more concise. It was wonderful. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I learned from the best. Uh, So uh, one one, uh, very brief uh, comment that we didn't discuss is urinary incontinence. Right. Uh, So we ask about it, but it's really not helpful. You can get urinary incontinence with syncope, you can get it with seizures, and you can get it with psychogenic attacks, and there have been systematic reviews that have looked at all of these, and really there's no huge difference. Um, and so I have had several referrals for somebody who clearly had a syncopal attack. Everybody thought that was a syncopal attack, and they were referred to me because they, they, they thought that it was not possible to have urinary incontinence with syncope. I, I'm here to say it is, and, and that's not my authority. That's been well established in the literature. Uh, so uh, I still ask about it, and I don't even know why I do, because it's really not helpful at distinguishing uh, those three entities.
0: That's it, that, that, was, that was something I was going to ask, as well because it's something that we learn in medical school to, uh, to ask for patients who, who had a possible seizure. So now let's move on to uh, the other elements of the encounter, which are the exam and uh, other studies. And I'll leave this part to Sonia.
1: Yeah, so you know we've we've done a very thorough history taking, um, and so now is the time to move on to the examination, which is certainly one of the favorite tools of neurologists. So, in assessing a patient who has experienced transient loss of consciousness, what elements of the neurologic exam would you focus on?
2: Well, you know, honestly, if somebody has returned to consciousness, you may not see much on neurological exam, and of the three entities we mentioned. Uh, uh, syncope, epileptic events, and non-epileptic spells. In in the vast majority of cases, a person's going to have a normal neurological exam after the event has resolved. That said, if somebody has focal neurological abnormalities indicative of cortical dysfunction, that may lead you to think that seizure is more likely. You know, If somebody has a subtle hemiparesis or a subtle language dysfunction after the event has been uh, has, uh, has purportedly ended, then that might suggest a post-dictal phenomenon or an underlying structural abnormality that has given you a predisposition to having seizures. But in the vast majority of cases, the exam is going to be normal. As I said before, I actually think it's more useful to look for other sequelae on the, that are not related to the neurological exam. So those petechiae in the face, in the eyes, or in the upper chest, the lateral tongue bite. Shoulder pain or limited range of motion to suggest a posterior shoulder dislocation. Tenderness to palpation in the mid-back to suggest a vertebral compression fracture. Uh, uh, Muscle tenderness or or tightness to suggest sequelae of that tonic phase. All of those things are going to be helpful. And then looking for other injuries that are related to the fall.
1: So it sounds like these are some of really the the red flags on the examination that would help clue you in on uh, what are the underlying etiologies of the the event that the patient experienced. Um, As an aside, uh, one thing that has come up quite a bit on rounds, almost as a a tangent, or even as uh, fun trivia facts when you're on the wards, is this uh, concept, uh, Todd's paralysis. Can you explain what that is? And also, how often do you see it?
2: Yeah. So uh, Todd's paralysis, strictly speaking, would be uh, after a focal onset seizure uh, that you would have persistent weakness uh, that would indicate uh, uh, ongoing dysfunction in the contralateral hemisphere. We often sort of term something a Todd's phenomenon because as I said before, you might have language dysfunction, you could have visual dysfunction, you can have really any cortical dysfunction as a sequela of a seizure that can persist for hours or in rare cases, even longer than that. The underlying etiology is thought to be the brain's response to the seizure. And this is really interesting. So how does a seizure stop? Well, a seizure stops because of surround inhibition, because of an inhibitory response. Basically somehow, and we don't understand this fully, but there is activation of all of these inhibitory GABAergic interneurons in the cortex to shut the whole thing down, and sometimes that inhibitory response sort of is overkill, right? You you put out a fire, you spray as much water as you can to put it out, but things might get a little damp. Uh, and in the same way, you have this ongoing postictal suppression of cortical activity, and it's thought to be that the manifestation of this ongoing postictal suppression of cortical activity is the focal neurological dysfunction that you have persistently afterward. This, this should be completely re- reversible and should completely resolve typically within hours, and uh, in rare cases it can take longer than that.
1: So, you know, now that we've gone through the neurologic exam, which as you said is, is oftentimes normal, although there are a few signs that we can look out for that might clue us in towards Uh, a seizure and specifically some kind of underlying cortical uh, uh, impairment or or deficit. Uh, Let's move on to the workup. Uh, What further studies would you pursue now that you have the history and the examination?
2: Yeah, so I think these can be divided into those studies that you're doing looking for provoking factors. And I alluded to those before. So those would be looking for electrolyte derangements, hypoglycemia, Uh, acute traumatic injury, uh, etc. And so you're you're typically going to check a person's electrolytes, including calcium and magnesium, typically going to check their blood glucose quickly, uh, being a very common cause. As I said before, alcohol and benzodiazepine withdrawal uh, can be triggering factors. In those cases, an alcohol level may be helpful because if it's Zero or undetectable in somebody who you know has a history of heavy alcohol use disorder, then that can be a strong indication uh, that they have stopped and that it could be related to withdrawal. Uh, and, And there are other things, but I would I would put those as sort of the the most common tests for provoking factors. If you have a suspicion of syncope, it would be important to do an EKG, and I defer to cardiologists for other additional cardiac investigations if there's some suspicion that this is cardiogenic syncope. Uh, And then the second part is if you have determined and are confident based on your history and your physical examination that this was likely an epileptic phenomenon, an unprovoked epileptic seizure, then you're doing investigations to look both for etiology but also the likelihood of recurrence. Uh, And that would include brain imaging, typically MRI imaging uh, if it's available because it's much more detailed and it doesn't carry with it the risk of radiation. Um, But in the acute setting, if you need a timely uh, image or you're worried about a a progressive neurological problem, you may get a CT scan of the head before that. Uh, And then uh, over the longer term, uh, EEG can be helpful at giving you an indication of the risk of recurrence. So to give you a sense of this, if somebody has had a single unprovoked seizure, you're confident that this was an unprovoked seizure and they've had a single event. If they have an abnormality on neurological exam, Uh, or a structural abnormality on brain imaging that uh, would indicate uh, a risk of uh, seizures, then that can substantially increase your risk of subsequent uh, unprovoked seizures and would indicate, uh, would be a strong indication for the need for anti-seizure drugs. Similarly, if you saw focal or generalized epileptiform discharges on EEG, that would much more strongly prompt you to start anti-seizure drugs than if both of those studies were normal. And so, if you have a normal exam, normal MRI, normal EEG, and one, provoked, one unprovoked event, you know, your risk might be somewhere in the 20 or 30% range of having a subsequent seizure. If any of those are abnormal, uh, you know, your risk is going to be much higher in the 60 to 70% range or, or even higher than that.
1: And so in the immediate aftermath of this transient event, how helpful is the EEG in determining if the patient had a seizure? How, how frequently is the EEG abnormal?
2: It's a great question. And it's a subject of uh, some debate because it sort of depends on timing. It depends on the duration of the EEG, et cetera, et cetera. It can depend on the epilepsy syndrome. Uh, Overall, if you do a routine EEG, some EEG between 30 and 60 minutes duration uh, within 24 hours of an event, maybe 50%, something like that, 20 to 50% if you wait longer, the the rate of finding an epileptiform discharge goes down. Um, Longer EEG, 24 hour EEG might be more likely to pick something up, but again, you know, not a hundred percent depending on the epilepsy syndrome. And we even have people, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of people, with epilepsy who never have interictal epileptiform discharges on EEG. They, uh, they only have seizures and that would be more common in somebody with a seizure focus. That's quote unquote deep, you know, somebody with a seizure focus in the insular cortex or in the orbital frontal cortex or the cingulate gyrus somewhere where it's unlikely that you would see an epileptiform discharge on scalp EEG.
1: Wonderful. So, now that we've uh, covered the approach, the, the history, the exam, and the workup to transient loss of consciousness, um, I think we can move on to these non-transient uh, cases of loss of consciousness.
0: Good. All right. So let's move on to the non-transient loss of consciousness. And Dr. Morley, in the beginning of the podcast, during our outline, you mentioned that uh, these disorders are usually categorized on some scale uh, that is a... You know, some scale from awake to coma. So, can you briefly describe the different categories and how they differ?
2: So, um, I'm going to go back to a very influential textbook in my life, uh, and I think something that should be owned by every neurology resident, and that is uh, Plum and Posner's Diagnosis of and Treatment of Stupor and Coma. Now, in its fifth edition, uh, and uh, a really beautifully written and edited book, and one there are a lot of different words and it's it's fine to get those words right but i think it's more important to recognize that that there are levels uh and and one caution for our our listeners would be to avoid applying the word if you're not really sure and i think it's better to just be descriptive you know um and use the words that come naturally to you but you can go in the, in the Plum and Posner book, you can go from clouding, which is sort of just a, a minimally reduced wakefulness, you know, somebody that, uh, that might be a little bit drowsy uh, to delirium, which we've talked about before, which can include some fluctuating levels of alertness, certainly impaired attentiveness um, uh, uh, and impaired awareness to varying degrees, you know, uh, having difficulty sort of interacting and most common cause of delirium would be a toxic metabolic encephalopathy. A little deeper would be the obtendation, which again is sort of a, uh, the next step down, a little bit more sleepy, a little bit less aroused, but still able to be aroused, uh, still to some extent uh, uh, have some level interaction but appearing drowsy. Then to stupor, which is a little bit more uh, uh, impaired and that's somebody, you know, no matter how much you wake them up, they're really not responding meaningfully to you. They do not appear alert. And then we go to coma and there, there are different levels of coma, but basically we think that coma means a significant impairment of both alertness and awareness. Uh, and there are scales to do that. So I think it's less important that you get those terms right, that, that you be descriptive, you know, you, that you talk about those three things. You talk about attentiveness, you talk about alertness, and you infer or g- gather what you can about the awareness. And as a side note, um, one example of a state where somebody can appear to not be alert, but they could be aware would be the locked in state. So if somebody has an abnormality Typically in the ponds where they have difficulty with sensory and motor relay uh, through the brainstem, they may be completely aware, uh, but not be able to interact with the environment in a way that that makes them appear alert. And this is why a careful neurological examination and careful attention to any sense of somebody's meaningful interaction uh, is important. Some people in a locked-in state can only move their eyes, and so you have to establish a way of communicating with them through eye movements. Uh, and there, there are powerful works of art uh, about people in w- locked-in states that we can point our listeners to. There's a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and there was a, a subsequent movie uh, of, a, of a person in a locked-in state who actually wrote an entire book uh, while not being able to move anything but his eyes.
0: Wow, I gotta check that out. That sounds uh, very, very meaningful. I can imagine that, given the kind of the neurobiology, the neuroanatomy behind loss of consciousness, that there might be a host of disease entities that can affect, you know, this the ascending reticular pathway or the bilateral thalamide, or, you know, widespread cortical damage. So all of these all of these etiologies of um, disorders of consciousness exist, and it might be hard for students to keep them straight. So do you have a good system of conceptualizing these mechanisms that can lead to non-transient loss of consciousness?
2: Um, One uh, one, uh, short version or short way of of thinking about the most common causes uh, was taught to me by a geriatrician when I was a medical student and a resident uh, and, uh, I always remember that it was drugs, drugs, drugs. So I started with those just being common and that included the, the, the reason the three drugs was there is basically, uh, polypharmacy or iatrogenic disturbances in consciousness, uh, excessive sedating medications prescribed by providers, uh, there were drugs of abuse, uh, intoxication, and then there was drug withdrawal, uh, particularly GABAergic drugs like alcohol or benzodiazepines uh, could cause disturbances in consciousness. Uh, Toxic metabolic encephalopathy, uh, and we've talked about any number of disease states that can cause sort of systemic illness and can lead to uh, a disturbance in consciousness. Uh, Congestive heart failure being one of those uh, uh, on that list, then you move down to sort of the more primarily neurological or structural causes. And any mnemonic you want to think about uh, for that is fine. Uh, people do vitamin C or SIGI, C- not SIGI C- caps depression, sorry, cut that out. But uh, vitamin C, what are the other ones? Vindicate, you know, various things like that, you know, vascular, infectious, inflammatory, etc., etc. Um, but cetera. But I actually like starting with the drugs, 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 uh, because that's, uh, you know, I, I talk so much to our residents about getting a good medication reconciliation, which will solve... 80 to 90% of your problems uh, in the, in the in, inpatient and outpatient setting. If you know what's been prescribed to somebody and what they're actually taking, talk about drugs of abuse, talk about withdrawal, you're gonna catch most disturbances of consciousness. Uh, and then of course, there can be prolonged seizures, there can be structural abnormalities, et cetera, et cetera. A careful neurological examination will then help you with those structural abnormalities and, and localizing where they are.
0: Got it, speaking of which let's talk about uh, the history taking and the exam portion of for, for a patient who is unconscious. So that's on Sonia. Yeah.
1: So in cases of, of non-transient loss of consciousness, the, the patient themselves, of course, is not available to, to give you the history. And oftentimes the history then has to be taken from a family member or someone close to the, the patient who can provide a, a narrative. Given this, what elements of the history would you focus on?
2: Yeah, I, you know there there are two two sort of main focuses on the history. Uh, one is going to be the time course, which will really give you a good clues about etiology, right? What types of things co- come suddenly versus those things that might progress gradually, uh, or, or so there's acute, subacute, and chronic. Um, and so that can be very helpful. So I must say, I, I spend a lot of time and it can be really hard, but trying to nail down that time course because that really is gonna narrow things into ideological buckets. Uh, and then the second thing is localization, right? Were they weak on one side? Uh, were, they, were they unable to speak for a while and, and then progress to loss of consciousness? Those might point to structural neurological problems. Um, were there seizures? Uh, and again, I can't say it enough. You got to chase the medications. Uh, Call every pharmacy, climb every mountain, uh, do the medication reconciliation, and and you will catch things uh, that nobody else has caught because you've paid attention and done that.
1: And you've already alluded to the the importance of the neurologic exam in getting to that etiology. And similarly, we've talked about the different disorders of consciousness, the terminology, and how important it is really just to be descriptive about what you're seeing. How do you do a, a thorough neurologic exam on an unconscious patient?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is an art. It's actually one of the things most of us as neurologists really enjoy perfecting uh, because it's a really nuanced skill. Uh, it's something you can do relatively quickly, um, but but you can do well. Uh, you, you do it sort of quickly, but still with attention to detail and, and being thorough. Um, so, you know, for, for the students, the Glasgow Coma Scale, which was actually designed for traumatic brain injury, but is applied in other settings, is useful. And I use it more as a guide to the, the ways that you can quantify level of arousal rather than the actual number. So the number is less interesting to me than the ways that you can quantify the level of arousal. So uh, the Glasgow Coma Scale has the three elements, right? You have the eye response, you know, is the person's eyes open? Do you have to use verbal stimuli to open them pain or do they not open at all? That's sort of getting at that alertness part. You have the motor response, do they follow commands? Do they localize the pain? Do they withdraw? Do they have a flexor extensor response? Some of that can be helpful for localization, you know, is something, cortical, subcortical, etc., cetera. Uh, and then the verbal response, you know, are, are they speaking? Now we have to qualify, right? You can have somebody that's alert, would be able to speak or understand, but has an endotracheal tube, you know, for example, because of breathing difficulties. And that's why some people put a little T at the end of the speech part of the Glasgow Coma Scale. And in that case, you can sometimes get people to write something uh, or read something, or like I said before, communicate with their eyes in yes, no ways or something like that. So again, The numbers I think are useful, but less important than actually being descriptive and sort of running through the ways that you test the level of arousal. Uh, Once you've done that, then uh, one thing I really uh, enjoy is the uh, brainstem examination. And even before that, and uh, I think both of you have uh, examined patients with me before, especially in a critical care setting, as I think Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot just by observing or something like that, you know, uh, you sort of walk in and you look. And I always spend a few moments just looking at the patient around the bed, at the monitors, all that stuff. And those can give you clues, right? You look at and you see four pumps going with three sedating medications and and a vasopressor agent. Well, that gives you a clue as to why the person might be, have a disorder of consciousness. You look at their heart rate and it's 42, that gives you a clue. You look at their blood pressure and it's on the low side, that gives you a clue. So all of those things I kind of consider as part of the examination. Then I go to the bedside and we go through the brainstem examination. And the brainstem examination has elements where they're, we're really looking at afferent and efferent limbs of different cranial nerves. So you do look at the pupillary response. The afferent limb is the second cranial nerve. The efferent limb is the third cranial nerve. You look at the oculocephalic response, the afferent limb is going to be the vestibular inputs, the eighth cranial nerve. The efferent limbs are going to be for the lateral directions, three and six, uh, and for the vertical directions, mainly three. When you look at the the corneal response, the afferent limb is gonna be cranial nerve five, the efferent limb is gonna be cranial nerve seven. You look at the gag response, the afferent limb is gonna be mainly cranial nerve nine, the front limb is gonna be mainly cranial nerve 10. And so you're kind of working your way through the brainstem. You can check and see if somebody has spontaneous respirations, even if they're on a ventilator. You can see if, uh, what motor response they have as we talked about before. You can see if there are spontaneous movements that suggest seizures, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really elegant ex- examination. It doesn't take too long, but it's something that I advise really anybody who's gonna be taking care of comatose patients to perfect.
1: And just going back to your point about testing uh, the level of arousal in patients, you've touched on this uh, briefly, uh, speaking about pain um, and response to pain. Uh, What are the different types of stimuli that you can use? um, And and for pain specifically, what are some of the different painful stimuli?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So we always start with voice uh, and uh, a clue here, it doesn't come naturally to me, but is to use short direct sentences, uh, to speak loudly, which does come more natural to me, uh, and to use the person's name, you know, to really try to get their uh, direct attention. So open your eyes, you know, wiggle your fingers, very direct uh, uh, types of uh, uh, things. And sometimes you have to repeat them uh, several times. Then you can go with non-noxious stimulation You can uh, 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 touch somebody on their shoulder or uh, uh, gently uh, uh, move their shoulder a little bit. You don't want to move somebody in a way that could compromise either their endotracheal tube or their cervical spine. Uh, So you have to be cautious about that. And then you can move on to noxious stimulation. And this is one of those things that uh, is always a a little bit... um, uncomfortable and produces some cognitive dissonance because none of us wants to harm or hurt a patient. But in order to adequately determine the level of arousal, sometimes we have to uh, stimulate enough that it would uh, cause pain, that it would cause a noxious stimulation in order to determine uh, exactly how deeply comatose somebody is. Uh, and some ways that we can do this are um, uh, superorbital pressure, so pressure on the superorbital nerve, um, uh, pressure on the trapezius muscle, um, uh, uh, sternal stimulation, although you want to be sure that somebody doesn't hasn't had a sternotomy. You know, a lot of the consults we see for coma would be in a cardiac intensive care unit, for example, um, or pressure on the nail beds. And again, with each of these, uh, it's hard for me to give advice over uh, a podcast, but I would say uh, students, uh, early learners really want to get clear guidance from an experienced person uh, about how to do this in, in, in the most uh, humane way, uh, while still doing it adequately to determine level of consciousness.
0: All right. So thank you all for joining us for the first episode of the Collective Success Series. I hope you guys had got a lot out of it. Uh, we talked a lot about trans- disorders of consciousness with transients, loss of consciousness and non transients, how to take the history, how to do the, the differentials, and how to do a physical exam for both of these cases. So, the show notes will be uploaded along with this podcast um, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you.
1: Thanks, guys.